And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Come to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. <coughs> you know, today is uh, Friday the 13th. January 13th. 13th day of the year. 152 days remain till the year's over with. You know, there's uh, been a lot of uh, interesting legends and rumors about Friday the 13th. We're going to talk more about that later on. First, I want to uh, make mention of the fact that uh, Lisa Marie Presley, Elvis's daughter, died uh, yesterday. She was uh, found uh, not breathing at her home, taken to the hospital, pronounced dead. She had uh, quite an interesting uh, history, married... uh, Four times, I think. Uh, Nicholas Cage was one. Uh, Michael Jackson and she were supposed to get married. I don't know if they did or not. But, um, you know, it's interesting that um, the children of those who reached the heights Elvis did generally have issues. Now, getting back to... Uh, December, uh, January 13th, uh, 27 B.C., Octavian transfers the state to the free disposal of the Roman Senate and the people. He got Spain, Gaul, and Syria as his province for a 10-year period. Um, In 532, the Nica riots break out during the racing season at the Hippodrome of Constantinople as a result of discontent with the rule of the Emperor Justinian. You know, the those in power seem to forget they serve at the pleasure of the people. And our current uh, leaders ought to uh, remember that. In uh, 1908, the Rhodes Opera House fired. Blairton, Pennsylvania killed 171. 1910, the first public radio broadcast takes place. A live performance of the operas Cavalleria Rusticana and Pagliacci is sent out over the airways from the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. Then in 1915, a 6.7 Avizano earthquake shakes the province of Valkyria in Italy with a maximum Mercalli intensity of 11, which is considered extreme. Killed between 29,978 and 32,610 people. 1920, the Reichstag bloodbath of January 13th. The bloodiest demonstration in German history took place. 1935, a pleasant site in Sarman shows that 90.3 of the people that voted wished to join Nazi Germany. 1939, the Black Friday bushfires burned 20,000 square kilometers. That's 7,700 square miles of land in Australia, claiming the lives of 71 people. 1942, Henry Ford patents the soybean car, which is 30% lighter than a regular car. Imagine that, running on soybeans. 1942, first use of an aircraft ejection seat by a German test pilot in a Nikol HE-280 fighter jet. You know, if the Germans could have gotten their various inventions into production. Uh, 
they would probably have won the war. 1950, British submarine HMS Trusimut collides with an oil tanker in the Thames estuary, killing 64. Uh, 1950, Finland forms diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. 1951, the First Indochina War. The Battle of Vien Yen begins. The uh, 1953, an article appeared in Pravda, accusing some of the most prestigious and prominent doctors who were mostly um, Jewish in the uh, Soviet Union taking part in a plot to poison members of the top Soviet political and military leadership. One thing about the uh, the Soviets, they announce what they're going to do, which they believe gives them justification to do it. The uh, 1978 U.S. Food and Drug Administration requires all blood donations to be labored, labored, labeled I can't talk. Paid or volunteer in regard to the donors. Uh, 1982, shortly after takeoff, Air Florida Flight 90, a Boeing 737 jet, crashes into Washington, D.C.'s 14th Street Bridge and falls in the Potomac. Kills 78 people, including four motorists. Uh, 1965, excuse me, 1985, a passenger train plunges into a ravine in Ethiopia. Kills 428 in the worst railroad disaster in Africa. The, uh, let's see. In 2018, a false emergency alert warning of an impending missile strike in Hawaii causes widespread panic in the state. 2012, a passenger cruise ship, the Costa Concordia, sinks off the coast of Italy. Due to the captain, uh, Francisco Satino's negligence and irresponsibility, 32 people are known to have died. There may have been more. Uh, 2020, the Ministry of Public Health confirms the first case of COVID-19 outside of China. And that was in Thailand, by the way. Uh, 2021, on this date, outgoing President Donald Trump is impeached for a second time on a Charge of incitement of insurrection following a January 6th uh, capital attack that happened on uh, a week before this. Now, interestingly enough, the Department of Justice is now in a quandary what to do about all the classified documents found in uh, the president's garage. Um, of course, he has an explanation for everything, don't you know? They were planted by Donald Trump. And I can picture Trump crawling through a window carrying a bag full of classified documents. Sheesh. All right, we have been talking about um, January 13th and the fact that it's uh, there's been a lot of... Um, Interesting superstitions about that date. It's considered an unlucky day in Western superstition. It occurs when the 13th day of the month in the Gregorian calendar falls on a Friday, which happens at least once every year but can occur up to three times in the same year. For example, 2015 had uh, Friday the 13th in February, March, and November. 2017 through 2020 had two Friday the 13th. 
2022 had just one. And uh, 2023 and next year, 2024, we'll have two Friday the 13th. And it occurs on any month that actually has the first day falling on a Sunday. Now, according to folklore, the monkey nature of the number 13 originated with the North mi- Norse myth about 12 gods having a dinner party in Valhalla. The trickster god Loki, who when invited, arrives as the 13th guest and arranged for Hur to shoot Balder with a mistletoe-tipped arrow. Dossie, um, uh, Donald Dossie, he was a uh, folklore historian, wrote at length about this, and he said Balder died and the whole earth got dark. The earth mourned. It was a bad, unlucky day. Now, this major event in Norse mythology caused the number 13 to be considered unlucky uh, after that. Superstition seems to relate to various things like the story of Jesus' last supper and the crucifixion in which there were 13 individuals present in the upper room on the 13th of Nisan, uh, Monday, Thursday, the night before his death on Good Friday. Now there's evidence of both Friday and the number 13 being considered unlucky. There's no record of the two items being referred to as especially unlucky in conjunction before the 19th century. Now in France, Friday the 13th might have been associated with misfortune as early as the first half of the 19th century. A character in the 1834 play, Les Finesses des Gabrilles, states, uh, I was born on a Friday, December 13th, 1813, from which all my misfortune stems. Now then, there's also the uh, the fact that the uh, Philip the Fair of France conspired with the Pope to uh, bring down the Knights Templar. He wanted their treasure. During one of the many riots in Paris, he had taken refuge at the Templars' uh, uh, headquarters there in Paris, and he saw their vast treasure room. So he arranged for every Templar to be arrested on the same day so that nobody could give anybody a warning. And that day was Friday the 13th. Uh, Of course, the word did get out, and the Templar treasure vanished, which is something that men have sought uh, ever since that time. Uh, In Spanish-speaking countries, instead of Friday... Tuesday the 13th is considered a day of bad luck. The Greeks consider Tuesday, and especially the 13th, an unlucky day. Tuesday is considered dominated by the influence of Ares, the god of war, or the Roman equivalent of Mars, the god of war. The fall of Constantinople in the Fourth Crusade occurred on Tuesday, April 13, 1204. And the fall of Constantinople to the Ottomans happened on Tuesday, May 29, 1453. Events that strengthened the superstition about Tuesday. In addition, in in Greek, the name of the the day is a uh, triti, meaning the third uh, day of the week, adding weight to the superstition since bad luck is said to come in threes. You know, in Italian culture, Friday the seventeenth and not the thirteenth is considered a bad luck day. The origin of this belief can be traced to the writing of the number thirteen in Roman numerals X V I I. By shuffling the digits of the 
of the number, one can easily uh, get the word uh, via exi, I have lived, implying death at present. That's an omen of bad luck, of course. In fact, in Italy, 13 is generally considered a lucky number. But due to Americanization, young people consider Friday the 13th unlucky as well. The 2000 parody film, Shrek, if you know what I did last Friday the 13th, was released in Italy with the title Shrek. Uh, I can't begin to pronounce it. Now, according to the Stress Management Center and the Phobia Institute in Asheville, North Carolina, the organizations we have, don't you know, an estimated 17 to 21 million people in the U.S. are affected by a fear of this day, made it the most feared day and date in history. And some people are so paralyzed by fear they avoid their normal routines and doing business and take flights or even getting out of the bed. It's been estimated that uh, eight to nine hundred million dollars is lost in business on this particular day because nobody's doing anything. Despite this, representatives of both Delta Airlines and Continental Airlines, uh, the latter now merged into United Airlines, stated that the airlines uh, don't suffer from any noticeable drop in travel on these particular Fridays. In Finland, a consortium of governmental and non-governmental organizations led by the Ministry of Social Affairs and Health promotes the National Accident Day to raise awareness about automotive safety, which always falls on Friday the 13th. The event's coordinated by the uh, Finnish Red Cross, been held since 1995. A study by uh, Scanlon um, and Singleton attracted attention from popular science literature as it concluded that the risk of hospital admission as a result of a transport accident may be increased by as much as 52% on the 13th. However, the authors clearly state the numbers of admission from accidents are too small to allow meaningful analysis, and subsequent studies have disproved any correlation between Friday the 13th and the rate of accidents. But at the same time, on June uh, 12, 2008, the Dutch Center for Insurance Statistics stated to the contrary that uh, fewer accidents reports of fire and theft occur when the 13th of the month falls on a Friday than the other Fridays because people are preventatively more careful or just stay at home on that particular date. Statistically speaking, driving is slightly safer on Friday the 13th, at least in the Netherlands in the last two years. Dutch insurers receive reports of an average 7,800 traffic accidents every Friday, but the average figure when the 13th falls on a Friday is just 7,500. Well, basically what it comes down to is many people firmly believe um, that um, strange things happen on the 13th of the month. Now, there was a movie a number of years ago called Friday the 13th. It's a story about a group of teenagers who were stalked and murdered while trying to reopen a summer camp at uh, Crystal Lake. Interestingly enough, that film is based on the real-life murders of three teenagers at Lake Bottom in Finland. You know, uh, 
truth is sometimes much stranger than fiction. All right, on that note, we are going to go back to our UFO topic that we talked about. I wrote a book in uh, 2016 called um, Beyond Roswell where I talked about UFO crashes and possible UFO involvement in the affairs of the human race. And more and more of my books are going on to uh, Amazon. Uh, you can uh, buy them as uh, ebooks. And I'm going to be doing some additional books. Um, the first book I ever did, uh, The Occult Connection UFOs, Sacred Societies, and Ancient Gods, I uh, note with great interest, is available um, on the secondary market at $2,300. It's considered a cult classic. And. Uh, I also saw that I'm supposed to be dead, which was a great shock. Nobody told me. Well, we were talking about the uh, the Aztec UFO crash, which many people say is a hoax. Um, the dilettantes who have taken over the uh, Roswell UFO conference um, I've said it's a hoax and of course they know because they're the experts but when the uh, there were a number of witnesses who arrived at the crashed UFO and uh, in fact uh, crawled over it and around it and, and they talked about the fact that uh, the site was visited by a helicopter now, at the time of that crash, which I think was 1948, um, the Sikorsky helicopter by Igor Sikorsky had only been in production four years. So um, the government had uh, gotten the most advanced technology they could find in their attempt to uh, deal with the UFO um, enigma. Now, we talked about the fact that there were two oil men who uh, arrived at the scene. One was Doug Nolan, and he talked about the helicopter that showed up and circled the crash site and took off to the northeast. Ignoring the orders of the police officer to leave the area, Bill Ferguson got a long pole from one of the trucks and was poking around inside the craft. To everybody's surprise, he activated something and a door or walkway into the craft opened up, and several of the witnesses looked inside to see if there was anybody needing any help. It was reported that the bodies were charred and dark brown and showed no signs of life. And Nolan remarked that it didn't appear the bodies had a dark skin, but they'd been exposed to tremendous heat. And this was a sensational story, and one many sophisticated people who were not there find impossible to believe. And it's always interesting the ivory tower scientists make their pronouncements based on their beliefs, not on facts. Now, a military security team arrived at the scene just a few hours. Doug Nolan called it uh, late morning, and that team took charge. The members were older and acted as if this recovering the flying saucer was something that they did routinely. The question on everybody's mind is, where did it come from? I mean, this was a desolate part of the country at that particular point in time. Um, when later questioned, nobody really knew what branch of the service these security personnel came from. As their uniforms didn't have any of the 
the normal patches and their vehicles were marked. A uh, security team took charge in a somewhat forceful manner. All records were divided into groups, asked their names, addresses, and why they were at that location. And once they got this information, the witnesses were sworn to secrecy and then ordered away from the area. Now, a few hours later, a team of scientists arrived on the scene. They'd flown in uh, to Durango, Colorado, and been shuttled to the site, probably by bus or auto. After marveling at the uniqueness of this circular craft, they set about uh, gaining entry. Again, using a pole, they gained entry by widening a cracked porthole, pushed a button or lever, and a door opened up in the side of the craft. That was according to uh, Scully. Most of this was narration, hearsay, and undocumented, and sounds kind of like a science fiction movie. Now, Scully reported he obtained his information from Silas Newton, an oil man, an investor, and from a mysterious Dr. G. He further explained Dr. G was really a composite of eight scientists who were at the uh, crash site, some of whom uh, Scully talked with. Dr. G was revealed to be an Arizona Magnetics engineer who was uh, an associate of one of the eight scientists, and the other names were never revealed. That's one of the interesting things. Uh, those in a professional capacity don't want to be associated with what they call pseudoscience like uh, UFOs. By a strange turn of events, Scully's story was called, uh, sought after by a San Francisco journalist by the name of Khan who wanted to buy Scully's st uh, story. Scully refused to sell it and Khan turned jealous and vowed to get Scully for not cooperating. So he reported Scully to the FBI and other government agencies and he wrote an article for True Magazine and labeled Scully's story as a hoax. And that's how the idea got started that the Aztec uh, crash was, in fact, a hoax. Khan also prevailed on the Denver DA to charge Scully with a crime fraud. Trial ensued, and Newton, Scully, and Dr. G uh, were convicted by a jury. They paid court costs and got no other penalty. federal government declared the whole case a hoax. So that put a, pretty much put an end to it. The story died, just like Roswell died after the Army said the crash in Roswell was a weather balloon. The uh, public, including many UFO researchers, accepted the, the verdict of the government and labeled this a hoax, and everybody thought the case was closed. Before the record, Newton Gabauer, who was Dr. G, and Scully maintained for the rest of their lives that they learned the truth about UFOs and shared it with the public who deserved to know. 1981, an aerospace engineer by the name of William Steinman decided to take a look at the Aztec case. He described himself as a skeptic, but he'd read Scully's book and it raised questions in his mind. Did anything really happen in that small town that was actually covered up by the military? So he went to Aztec, New Mexico, which has got a population, I think I uh, mentioned yesterday, of about 160. Well, at least at that time it did. I began to interview locals who knew about the story. At one yard sale he stopped at, he learned where the crash site was. He went there and observed charred rocks and a heavy concrete slab, and he noted the remoteness of the site. And he listened and asked questions as locals replayed the story for him. See, according to what everybody said, 
And these were people who either, either were there or got the story uh, firsthand. UFO had landed, a crash landed at Hart Canyon and was recovered by the military and taken away. The craft was circular, silver in color, 100 feet in diameter, with a dome on top and on the bottom. One porthole was fractured. And over a period of three days, the craft was dismantled and hauled off. At night, by large flatbed trucks, and everything was covered by tarps, taken to a secure location thought to be Los Alamos. And then the area was secured by troops for two miles in each direction. Now, Steinman also reported that the craft had been detected by three radars operating in the Four Corners area. One of these was a new type and was more powerful than the others. One or more of the radars may have interfered with the ship's uh, flight mechanism and actually caused it to pancake down in the Mesa. At least that's according to Steinman. The radar station has notified higher headquarters. A special Army unit called the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, and you got to love the names that folks come up with, operating out of uh, Camp Hale, Colorado, was ordered to the scene. A team of scientists was assembled and sent into the crash area. The scientists included two of the country's foremost men of science, Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, and associated with the atomic bomb, don't you know, and Dr. Vannevar Bush. Now, there's some documentation in Steinman's book for some of these statements. There's a telex sent from uh, Camp Hill, Colorado, to headquarters, Assistant Chief of Staff G2, that's intelligence, at the time of the recovery mission and reproduced on uh, page 45 of Steinman's book. And it says, basically, flying object of unknown origin recovered near Aztec, New Mexico, craft approximately 100 feet in diameter, 36 feet high, one window, port blown, bodies on board, all occupants dead, four foot high, oversized heads, the craft has a metallic skin, uh, thin as newspaper, but too tough to penetrate by conventional tools. Property, property was published from locals in order to facilitate transporting of the craft to a base. Now, there are a number of other documents, exhibits, and drawings scattered throughout the Steinman research text uh, relating to more crash saucers, MJ-12 members, medical reports of bodies, Freedom of Information Act requests, and uh, security considerations. On the whole... Good documentation, but often hard to read, assimilate, and connect up to the text. It's a research book, not a uh, relaxed reading book. Now, the scientists who leaked the whole Aztec story uh, to uh, Dr. G or Leo Gebauer, uh, according to Steinman and Wendell Stevens, who published the book, is named in and pictured in, uh, at uh, crash in Aztec. Stevens also had been researching the case. As readers of the Star Beacon well knew, the whole UFO feel is complicated and fused with disinformation and secrecy. And much of the story is classified top secret or above and remains classified to this day, which is an interesting uh, result to a, a hoax, don't you know? Steinman wrote to another scientist, Dr. Robert Sarbacher, who served on various boards and committees with Dr. Bush and other scientists who were believed to have been at the crash site and participated in the recovery. Steinman sought information from Sarbacher by letter and phone about the crash in 1948. Eventually, Sarbacher responded. He said the crash was real, and doctors uh, 
Bush, Oppenheimer, and John Van Neumann, the country's most famous mathematician and computer designer, were present at the crash site, he said. Steinman wrote that he was thrilled, thrilled to receive Sarbacher's letter. It was confirmation of years of research. Now, eventually, Steinman ran out of time and money. He contacted Wendell Stevens, veteran UFO researcher, who's now dead, unfortunately, who agreed to publish Steinman's research along with his own. And this resulted in their privately published book, UFO Crash at Aztec, A Well-Kept Secret, which came out in 1986. Now, the book is worth reading and studying, but in the book, the Aztec stories related is true, although covered up by the government. However, I have to admit the book is truly fascinating in the amount of detail it's presented, an unusual amount of detail for uh, a topic. A topic that is um, been labeled a hoax. Steinman ended his first research trip to Aztec by reporting on the large black helicopters that followed him as he pursued his research and flew over his house in California when he got home. Now, keep in mind, there's been a lot of stories about black helicopters. Quite often when they're seen, they don't have any markings. You don't know who sent them or what they're there for. But there's no question they do exist. Now, from Aztec, let's go to Horse Springs, also known as Magdalena. You know, around the 4th of July every year, Roswell, New Mexico hosts a UFO festival built around the uh, Roswell incident. Much before the event, which is always held the 4th of July weekend, the motels in and around Roswell can be sold out. And these festivities normally include a parade, film festival, rock concert, costume contest, bicycle run, and a glow-in-the-dark nerf tournament. Any spare time the visitor could have had be spent at the two UFO museums. And any spare money can be spent for T-shirts and toys and gimmicks and statues that only the out-of-limits of the imagination can curb. And the dilettante, of which there are many at the Roswell UFO Conference, gets to strut his stuff and talk about how great a researcher he is and how brilliant his two or three books are. But what about the other UFO crash in 1947? The one out at San Augustine Plains. Many talk about the crash at Magdalena. I very really know much about it. Interestingly enough... Even among those who know about the crash, this is, there are not very many people who know the details of this particular UFO crash. About the time the crash occurred at Roswell, New Mexico, on July 3rd, 47, something most peculiar may have happened uh, somewhere out on the San Augustine Plains. There are those who say that something did happen, and there are those who say that nothing happened. Now, unlike the events at Roswell, the area around Magdalena, which is also known as Horse Springs, is isolated. And due to the isolated location of the crash site, the list of those potentially involved is a short one. Some of the better-known witnesses to this particular event are Barney Barnett, a longtime resident of Socorro who worked for the Soil Conservation Service. He died around 1969, and he was very well thought of and respected by everybody who knew him, many of whom are still living in the vicinity. And the story he told has never been disproven in any um, of the facts that he put forward. 
Then there's Harold Baca, a neighbor and friend of Barney Barnett and father of the proprietor of Harold's store located on South California Street in Socorro. Gerald Anderson was five years old in 1947, has almost a perfect recollection of the happenings that, that took place in early 47. It's reported that there were six archaeology students at the University of Pennsylvania doing a dig in the area, but they've never been located or identified. And after the threats made by the uh, counterintelligence and uh, Army MPs, they're not likely to come forward. And there was some Army Air Corps, later U.S. Air Force personnel, who became involved. Unfortunately, identified only as a disagreeable red-haired officer and a black soldier. Again, we don't have any names. Nothing at all was heard about any of the odd events on the plains for many, many years. However, around 1967 or so, when he was very ill with cancer of the mouth and throat, Barney Barnett told Harold Baca he believed his cancer was caused by the flying saucer he saw on San Augustine Plains. Yeah, apparently not having heard the story before, Baca asked Barnett for more information of where did you see this? And he said, the San Augustine Plains out past Magdalena. With these little guys, and I leaned down to look at them, and I got some of that radiation. Seems that Barney Barnett had not spoken much about his encounter over the years, so it was something of a shock to Baca that his friend had never spoken about what had happened to him all those years ago. Charles Burlitz and William Moore wrote a book called The Roswell Incident, which includes an interesting account of Barnett's encounter you can find it on page, pages 57 to 63, in which Barnett is uh, supposed to have told several people about it in the 50s. According to Burlitz and Moore, on or about July 3rd, Barnett was out working near Magdalena and came across a large metallic object with some uh, not exactly human dead bodies lying around the craft. He described the bodies as having large, round, uh, hairless heads and small eyes. He also said there were others present. He stated among the staff members of this one more time. He stated that among the small number of people present when he discovered the craft were some archaeology students who might have been from the University of Pennsylvania or the University of Michigan. A short time later, he found uh, he found the crash saucer off the hour um, escorted away by Army Air Corps personnel and cautioned strongly not to say anything about what they'd seen to anybody for any reason. Later, Gerald Anderson came forward in 1990 after viewing a segment of Unsolved Mysteries telling about the UFO said to have crashed in the San Augustine Plains. He was five years old in 1947 and claims to have been with his father, his uncle, his cousin, and his brother on a summer morning when they came across a silver object stuck in the ground at a weird angle. Later in 1980, excuse me, 1990, can't read my own handwriting, uh, Gerald uh, picked out a small hill on Dave Farr's land, east of uh, Horse Springs, and declared this was the place where he and his relatives had uh, found the crashed UFO. He said he remembered the archaeology students and Barney Barnett and being chased away by the Army Air Corps personnel in the person of a nasty red-haired officer and a black soldier. He also reported that two of the four aliens found around the craft were alive at the time he saw them. Now, Anderson passed a polygraph test in 1991, but his testimony is understandably uh, disputed by some of the UFO experts, especially the dilettante brigade, 
to many who style themselves as leaders in the UFO community, if it didn't happen in Roswell, it didn't happen. Now, readers and listeners should also note that Barney Barnett makes no mention of the Anderson family's presence, though Anderson stated he remembered Barnett. In the book it crashed, uh, called Crash at Corona by Stanton Friedman and Don Berliner, written in 92, there's a discussion of Anderson's account on uh, pages 89 to 97 and 105 to 108. Stanton Friedman has done some research on the incident at Horse Springs, as have several other UFO experts, but as near as I can determine, the lengthiest uh, research as yet unpublished was done by Victor Golubic. Now, Victor, who lives in Phoenix, is one of a number of UFO aficionados at uh, Jackie Barrington, editor, editor of the Magdalena Mountain Mail, referred to uh, various researchers, all for the sake of the story. The big story. All of them were nice, but single-minded and multi-worded. Volumes of words on UFOs and aliens bombarded the public in the spring and summer of 1995. Many serious UFO researchers uh, tend to be mature, but Victor would at all what you would expect. First of all, he was young, and although extremely enthusiastic about UFO research, he was able to converse about many different topics. Unlike the author of a number of books published regarding the Roswell crash, Victor doesn't seem to have a theory into what, uh, into which he and the bends and crashes um, the facts to prove he's correct. Like a few of the more serious researchers, Victor would love to find evidence of a UFO crash here, but uh, he's equally open to the uh, possibility that it never happened. On July 3, 1995, he and a friend drove down Route 12 to the place near Horse Springs, identified by Gerald Anderson. Now, Victor had already obtained permission from Dave Farr to enter his land, and just north of uh, Horse Springs, they turned east on a dirt track. And they got to a hill on the left, and Victor said, this is it. Hill looked much like any other hill with a few trees, nothing to say it was or wasn't uh, witness to something fantastic. Location was surprising because it, uh, if this was the place, it would be most unlikely for anything to have crashed there without everybody in Horse Springs knowing about it. Previously, the two had spoken with several people who had resided in the Horse Springs area in 1947, and none mentioned anything unusual that, that happened that summer. Several did remember a plane crash by the Armijo's uh, old Horse Springs store somewhere around 1945, and nobody could pinpoint the exact spot or the exact year, but one individual interviewed and had that distinct memory of going to see the crash plane. said it was a military plane, and the pilot was dead. Now, that site, which the two examined, yielded nothing, but logically, 50 years can wipe away a lot. The Air Force was a presence in Catherine County during the late 40s, or the Army Air Corps, staffing what they said was a radar tower on the road to the uh, Marvin uh, Aki Ranch. People remember seeing uh, Air Force vehicles on the road. Nobody reported seeing one carrying the bodies of the extraterrestrial kind. From Quamado to Reserve to Datil and Socorro and 
person by telephone, Victor interviewed people who had lived there during those years. Infinitely patient, he was willing and eager to spend hours listening to people talk on all kinds of subjects, and gradually he'd lead them back to the subject he wanted to talk about. He'd return a few months later to talk to them again and telephone at intervals to see if they remembered anything else. With the aid of his computer and out-of-town phone books, he tracked down people all over the country. Tracked them down, talked to them, and found nothing really conclusive regarding the St. Augustine uh, UFO uh, crash. He said, uh, these sources are not named in this unscientific article because they're not, they never mentioned any intent to publish our findings. We were, not, we were just making inquiries. There are many fascinating tales handed down over the years, but no first-hand information. Quamato, that resident, did report a meeting of Vister in 1946, a year earlier than the famous crash, who said, uh, I just stopped in Magdalene and there's a thing from space. There's people in it and they say one of them's still alive. One Quamato resident knew a man in Mangus who saw a shiny thing in the mountains one summer in the late 40s. A few uh, Aragon residents recall hearing about the incident. Just that there was tracks, said one. From another, there were strange people. They were moving. It looked like a plate. They admitted this was hearsay. They didn't necessarily describe it. Most remembered first hearing about the UFO crash in the 80s when the investigators started appearing in Catherine and Socorro counties. Must be people and though, um, out there who saw and heard something in the 50s or before, but the question is, where are they? After a respectable amount of research, there's few answers about this crash, though there are a great many questions. Did Barney Barnett, whose soil conservation work usually took him west from Socorro, go east that day and come across the Roswell UFO crash? Could the crash Barnett saw have been the main part of the crash that also left uh, pieces at uh, Corona? Did the crash occur in the St. Augustine uh, Plains, but uh, not near Horse Springs? Remember how Baca quotes Barney Barnett as saying out past Magdalena. Now that means on the way to Datal, but closer to Magdalena. Describing Horse Springs, one would more likely say south of Detail. And there's some support for an incident in Magdalena. Not evidence, mind you, but support. There's hearsay that supports the story. According to Magdalena residents, the UFO was purported to have crashed about 15 miles west of Magdalena possibly around Wolf Well or Trace Mon uh, Montanus. But a man from Socorro says Barney Barnett told his father that the crash occurred somewhere between Detail and Horse Springs. So who's telling the truth? Both could be. There may have been two crashes, or neither could be telling the truth. Depending on who you believe, the story does have fascinating possibilities. Well, from Horse Springs, let's go to San Antonio, New Mexico. That's a small, sleepy New Mexico town located just off Interstate 25 between Las Cruces and Socorro. It's the home of the world-famous Owl Cafe. Purveyors of the best hamburgers to the known world. And I know I've eaten there many times. Now, there's a story relating to a UFO crash in San Antonio, New Mexico, that dates to 1945. 
Now, I do want to take a, a note and make mention that according to Wikipedia, San Antonio is an unincorporated community in Socorro County, New Mexico. Uh, it's roughly in the center of the state on the Rio Grande. Uh, the entire population of the county is about 18,000. San Antonio is partly agricultural and partly a bedroom community for Socorro and the White Sands Missile Range. There's uh, a few businesses in town, the original Owl Cafe and Bar, which is featured on an episode of the Travel Channel's or Burger Land in 2013. Uh, Manny's Backhorn Tavern, featured in 2009 on the Food Network's uh, Throwdown with Bobby Flay. Uh, San Antonio Crane, a restaurant featuring Mexican food, a seasonal roadside market, and a general store. It's the gateway to the Bosque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge. If you are in that area, I recommend going by. It's a fascinating little town. Now, according to witnesses, in mid to late August 1945, a small contingent of U.S. Army passed almost unnoticed through San Antonio in mid to late August on a secret assignment. Military detail apparently came from White Sands Proving Grounds to the east where the, the atomic bomb was initially exploded. It was a recovery operation uh, destined for the Mesquite and Greasewood Desert west of old US-85 at what's now milepost 139, the San Antonio exit of Interstate 25. Witnesses report that over the course of several days, soldiers and army fatigues loaded the shattered remains of a flying vehicle under a large flatbed truck and drove away. Now, two witnesses, one named Remigio Baca and the other, Jesse Padilla. And they insist that the operation took place between August 20th and August 25th, 1945. Padilla, who was nine at the time, and Baca, who was seven, secretly watched much of the uh, soldiers' recovery work from nearby Ridge. And according to their story, they were very interested because they were actually the first to reach the crash site. And what they saw was a long, wide gash in the earth with a large object lying cockeyed and partially buried at the end of it. Surrounded by a large field of debris. They believed then and believe today that the object was occupied by distinctly non-human life forms that were alive and moving about on uh, when the two boys arrived minutes after the crash. Now, they reported their uh, findings to Jose uh, Baca's father, Fausti uh, excuse me, Jose, uh, Jose Padilla's father, Faustino Padilla, on whose ranch the crash had, uh, occurred. Shortly afterwards, Faustino got a military visitor asking for permission to remove the object from the Padilla's property. The Army told the public nothing about it and told the Padilla family it was a weather balloon. And that was according to uh, Remy and Jose now in their mid-60s. And I actually got a chance to talk to them. And the two men insist the Army went to great lengths to keep the operation under wraps, even concocting a cover story to mask their mop-up operation on the ranch. During their school years, Jose and Remigio, who were best friends, would sometimes whisper about the events of the that August, which occurred before any of the other mysterious UFO incidents in Mexico were reported, but they didn't tell others about it on the advice of their parents and 
a state policeman friend. The significance of what they saw grew in their eyes over time as tales of UFOs and flying saucers multiplied across the country, especially in a band across central New Mexico. Among the most prominent sightings was the Coral Police Officer Alani Zamora, which happened April 24, 1964. There was an on-duty report of a manned UFO just south of Socorro, less than 10 miles north of the heretofore unnoticed 1945 Padilla Ranch crash. Jose and Remigio had long gone from the area by that time. UFOs and flying saucers um, hit the news, and although both kept up with the Socorro County events, they lost contact and never discussed the emerging phenomena with each other. Remy moved to Tacoma, Washington while still in high school and Jose to Rowan Heights, California. And then two years ago, more than 40 years apart, uh, they met by chance at the, on the internet while tracking their ancestry. It was in their interest in the most intriguing event of their childhood was rekindled. Now, during some of the conversations, Remigio and Jose decided to tell their story to a veteran news reporter, Ben uh, Moffin, a classmate in San Antonio grade school who they knew uh, shared their understanding of the culture and ambiance of San Antonio in the 40s and 50s and who was familiar with the terrain, place names, and people. So Moffitt wrote a story. And the story is quite interesting. Now all these stories, copies, can be found in my book, uh, Beyond Roswell, and there's a lot beyond Roswell that nobody's talked about in the past. Now, according to this story by Ben Moffat, and I'm going to do it verbatim, the pungent but pleasing aroma of grease wood was in the air as Jose Padilla, age nine, and Miguel Baca, age seven, set out on horseback one August morning in 1945 to find a cow that had wandered off to have a calf. Now, this was published in the Mountain Mail, and you can find it at um, Ben Moffitt at ART.net. I'm sorry, ATT.net. The scent of the greasewood, more often called creosote bush today, caught their attention as they moved away from this tiny settlement on their horses, um, belly uh, and uh, dusty. Creosote scents evident only when it's moist and his presence on the wind meant some rain was somewhere nearby. As they worked the draws on the Padilla Ranch, they were mindful of flash flooding, which might occur in Walnut Creek or some of the side arroyos if there was a major thunderstorm upstream. Gully washers aren't uh, uncommon in late summer in the northern stre uh, stretches of the Chihuahuan Desert of central New Mexico, especially along the foothills of the Magdalena Mountains looming to the west. Now, despite the minor perils associated with being away from adults, it was a routine outing for Jose and Remy. It wasn't odd to see youngsters roam far afield doing chores during the war years. According to Jose in a, in a recent interview, he said, I could ride before I could walk. We were expected to uh, do our share of the work. Hadn't got a cow for my dad. Wasn't a bad job, even in the August heat. At length, they moved into terrain that seemed too rough for the horse's hooves, and 
because they decided to tether them uh, minus their bridles, allowing them to graze. He had been spotted a mesquite thicket, a likely place for a little cow to give birth, and they set off across a field of jagged rocks and chose a cactus to take a look. As he moved along, mumbling about the uh, thorns, the building Thunderhead decided to let go, and they took refuge under a, a ledge above the uh, floodplain, protected somewhat from the lightning strikes that uh, suddenly peppered the area. The storm quickly passed, and as they again moved out, another brilliant light accompanied by a crunching sound shook the ground around them. What it all like a thunder, um, other experiment of white sands, they thought, and uh, it seemed too close. Remy said we thought it came from the next canyon adjacent to Walnut Creek, so we moved to that uh, in that direction. We hear a cow and a clump of mesquites, and sure enough, it was the cow they were looking for, licking a white-faced calf. Quick check revealed the calf to be healthy and nursing, and the boys decided to reward themselves with a small lunch as they had packed uh, it was a tortilla each, washed down with a few swigs from a canteen and an apple. And as they munched, uh, Jose noticed smoke coming from a draw adjacent to Walnut Creek, a main tributary from the mountains down to the Rio Grande. Ignoring their task at hand, the two boys headed toward it, and when they topped a rise, they stopped dead in their tracks. There was a gouge in the earth as long as the football field and a circular object at the end of it. Hardly visible, he said, uh, through a field of smoke color of an old pot. His mother was always trying to shine up, a dull metallic color. They moved closer, he said, and found the heat from the wreckage and burning greasewood to be intense. You could feel it through the soles of your shoes, he said. It was still humid from the rain, stifling, and it was hard to get close. So on this note, we've run out of time, and we'll talk about more about uh, what was found and this was one site that I had the opportunity to wander over though many years after the fact and the story they told matches the uh, the landmarks and the land that I saw on that note we'll be back Monday and once again we'll talk more about crashed UFOs and what happened beyond Roswell. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.